And today we are in Luke chapter 13, from verse 10 down to verse 17. Let me read this for us. This is what God's word says. Now he, that is Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you would reveal to us your glory through your word. Help us by your spirit to see and behold all that you have shown in this healing miracle. That we might behold the greatness of your gospel, the sufficiency of Christ who is our Savior and Deliverer. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, we come this morning uh, to yet another miracle on the Sabbath, and what seems at first like a very typical account of just one of many instances of Jesus healing the sick, we uh, actually have here a rich and dramatic revealing of what is so glorious about the Gospel. Because here we see a visible message of the absolute rest and comfort that Jesus came to bring sinners. How complete and total is his deliverance that he delivers us from every weight and burden of the soul. You see, this passage begins as we are told of one particular Sabbath day in which Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, which was his custom. But on this day, there was a woman who had been suffering from this debilitating ailment for 18 years, as we read. And it says in verse 11 that she was bent over and she could not fully straighten herself. And this woman was probably suffering from what modern medicine calls spondylitis deformans, where her spine had essentially become crushed together and fused into a single lump of hardened mass. Now, normally a healthy spine consists of vertebrae that are spaced out along the spinal column, uh, which allows for movement and flexibility. But for this woman, it's as if the intervertebral discs had degenerated and were welded together, resulting in this warped, solid mass, hard as a rock. And so she was unable to move freely, and she was permanently crouched over. Now, no doubt, it was a horrible and crippling uh, ailment. Uh, For 18 years, uh, this woman lived life as if she were constantly weighed down, having to carry around a heavy load, even though there was nothing on her back. And even the most basic act of standing on her own two feet was painfully strenuous. But there she was, still nonetheless 
at the synagogue on the Sabbath day listening to Jesus teach, which tells you a lot about the sincerity of her faith and how much she prioritized her spiritual well-being. Now, what's especially noteworthy here is, as you've probably noticed, is how her physical condition is attributed to a spiritual cause. Verse 11 tells us that this woman had a disabling spirit for 18 years. Apparently, some evil spirit had afflicted her and brought upon her this crippling affliction. She was the victim of of an incapacitating spirit, whatever that may be. And later in verse 16, Jesus says quite clearly that this woman was suffering this for 18 years because Satan had bound her. Her spine had been constricted by the hand of the devil. Now, what in the world do we make of this? I mean, does this mean that every sickness is of demonic origin? Does every physical problem have a direct spiritual cause? No, not necessarily. Uh, If that were the case, then Paul wouldn't have told Timothy to take a bit of medicinal wine for his frequent stomach bugs in 1 Timothy 5. Apparently, Timothy had a sensitive tummy. And rather than telling Timothy to ward off evil spirits, Paul says, hey, guy, just put a little dose of wine in the water you drink to help decontaminate it, which was probably what was causing uh, Timothy's stomach bugs in the first place, uh, dirty water. The point is, sometimes, and rather many times, most times, physical ailments are just that. They're just physical ailments. If you're walking and you fall and you break your wrist... It's not because some demon pushed you while you're walking, okay? It's probably because your shoelaces were untied and you should really check that they are tied. But in all seriousness, I mean, diseases, illnesses, disorders, physical defects, they all do have an ultimate spiritual cause, an ultimate spiritual origin, namely that we live in a world marred by sin and decay. And ever since the fall, the whole cosmos is no longer working as God designed it to be because it has been fractured by sin. And that's why Paul explains in Romans chapter 8 how even creation itself longs for the day of its redemption when Jesus will return to make all things new, including the inanimate world. So again, that's why we suffer sickness and bodily dysfunction and most of all, decay and death. Our our bodies break down. And so yes, technically, every illness and disease does have an ultimate spiritual root cause. But they're not necessarily the result of a direct strike from an immediate spiritual agent. At least not always. But here, for this woman, we can't get around the fact that the text clearly states that her physical impairment was a direct result of a striking flow, a blow, a blow from the hand of Satan about 18 years prior to this day. And so again, what, what, what gives? How, how, how do we make sense of this? Well, the best way to answer this is to remember what Jesus said about the blind man in John chapter 9. The disciples asked Jesus, what was the cause of this man's blindness? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus responded by saying, neither of those reasons. But this man was born blind that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, especially during Jesus' ministry on earth, God sometimes ordained 
for certain supernatural afflictions to befall people, even permitting them to be executed by the hands of the evil one, so that when these afflicted people eventually encounter Jesus, he would do a mighty work of deliverance, and through that deliverance, from that particular affliction, a certain aspect of God's glory and majesty would be revealed. And so it is here with this woman whose spine is deformed. There's something about her condition and Jesus' healing of it that's meant to be a vivid object lesson about God's work of deliverance and salvation through Christ. And we know this because, going back to that healing of the blind man in John chapter 9, Jesus explains at the end of that chapter, in verse 39, that the point of all of this was that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. That is, that those who know and confess themselves to be blind might be granted spiritual sight. But those who think themselves as already enlightened and self-righteous, namely the Pharisees, that they would be left in the dark, given over to their blindness. So you see, all of the miraculous works that Jesus did, they were all serving as shadows of his ultimate work in the gospel, in one way or another. Every time Jesus healed the blind, it was a sign to point to and to show that he is able to open the eyes of the spiritually blind, that we might behold the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, 2 Corinthians 4.4. All the times that Jesus healed those with leprosy, it was a sign to show that he is able and willing to cleanse the spiritually unclean, no matter how filthy and incurable we may be in our sin. Because he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. And so in the same way, this woman's peculiar disease and Jesus' healing of it, it's meant to be a sign to serve as a spiritual object lesson, which is this, that her physical condition is a living picture of mankind's spiritual condition, of being crushed, and incapacitated by the weight of sin that we can never free ourselves from. Notice the wording in verse 11. It says that she had a disabling spirit. Now that can literally be translated that she had a spirit of weakness or a spirit of powerlessness. Now in one sense, this is just describing her affliction and that a certain incapacitating spirit had crippled her and rendered her weak and immobile. But more importantly, this is the same language that the New Testament uses to describe the spiritual condition of sinful man. As Paul writes in Romans 5, 6, that while we were weak and powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. What's Paul saying there in Romans 5? In what way are we weak? Well, Well, the whole argument of the book of Romans is this, that as sinners... We have failed to do the law of God. We fall short of His glory. We we fall short of His holiness and His standard of perfect righteousness. But by works of the law, no human being will be justified in His sight. There's nothing that man can do to earn God's favor and approval and goodwill. 
No matter how hard he tries, no matter what kind of good morals he endeavors to espouse, no matter how many charitable deeds he commits himself to, because God demands perfect righteousness. God is perfectly good. Heaven, heaven is perfectly good. It is perfectly pure and it is perfectly righteous. That's what makes it heavenly. That's what makes it such paradise. And so nothing unclean can ever enter it, as Revelation 21 says. Not a hint of impurity, not a hint of unrighteousness. You cannot be pretty good. You cannot be relatively good and enter into God's presence. You must be holy, for He is holy. And so if you intend on being measured by your own morals in order to be accepted by God, if you put all your stock in being evaluated by your own righteousness, what a good person you think you are, I've got news for you. You will fall miserably short. There's no way. There's no hope of being justified before God by your own deeds, by your own doing. Even if we were to swear from here on out that we will be spotless and sufficiently righteous, number one, good luck with that. But number two, we're already stained with unrighteousness. We cannot unstain the damage that's already been done by our sin. You see, this is why we as sinners are described as spiritually weak, powerless, incapable, impotent, because we are completely unable by our own efforts, by our own working, by our own doing to earn God's acceptance. We are weak and powerless in relation to the law of God. We're hopeless in meeting up to the standard of God's law by our own merit. And this is why Paul later says in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, that the law, which is good, God's law is good and holy, but the law is weakened by our flesh, by our sin. We, we make the law of God weak because due to our sin and guilt, the law is now unable to save us. The law is not a means to bless us because we're transgressors of the law. So the law can only function to curse us and to crush us with the weight of its just condemnation. And so look, inasmuch as this poor woman was crushed and unable to straighten herself, so is the plight of every sinner. That we are crushed by the demands of the law that we could never fulfill. Just as this woman walked around as if she she were in bondage under a heavy yoke placed on her back. In the same way man is in bondage to the weight of sin, the bond of iniquity. And isn't it interesting that this woman's physical diagnosis of a hardened spine is exactly how God gives his spiritual diagnosis of the stubborn heart of sinners all throughout the Bible. Even from the Old Testament in Exodus, when God saw his own people, how rebellious they were, how did he describe them? He described them as stiff-necked. And in the New Testament language, that is literally a sclerosis of the neck, which by by implication is a sclerosis, a hardening 
of the spine, just as this woman was. You see, friends, this woman is a living, walking picture of the soul of a sinner. She is powerless to save herself. She is totally unable, no matter how hard she tries, to straighten herself and to stand tall with confidence and boldness. And this is the basic premise of the gospel, isn't it? That we can't save ourselves. And that we need a Savior who can bring about a supernatural, miraculous deliverance. Listen, are you here today without a Savior? Are you here today not a Christian? And do you think that you will somehow try to live a good, upright life and be good enough for God one day? Are you here so confident in yourself that you think that what awaits you in eternity, what, that what you deserve is some reward, some honor, so, some happiness? Do you feel that God owes you an ounce of goodwill and blessing? Don't be deceived. Don't be deluded. All have sinned and fall short of His glory, Romans 3.23. You fall terribly short of His glory. You are hopelessly, unimaginably unclean before Him, whose eyes are too pure to look upon evil. You are an unrighteous sinner, and there is nothing you can do to atone for your sins because the irreparable damage has already been done. I mean, look, do, do, do you look at this woman suffering for 18 years in this miserable condition, do, and do you pity her as you should? This is how God sees you. You are like this poor woman. You are under bondage, totally powerless, immobilized by the weight of your unrighteousness. You do not have the strength to free yourself. You are weak and incapable. And what you need, friend, is to turn away from trusting in your own worthless merits and your own self-perceived virtue by what you falsely believe that you, you're a good enough person that you can earn God's acceptance. And you, my friend, you, you need the undeserved, unearned grace of God, the miracle of His salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus says to you, child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. You need to turn to Jesus and trust in Him who is able and willing to deliver you to loose the bonds of darkness just as He did very tangibly for this woman. Notice the grace of Jesus, how He is the one who initiates this deliverance in verse 12. When Jesus saw her, He called her over. And as He lay His hands on her, look at what He says, Woman, you are freed from your disability. Again, literally, it can be translated, you are released from your weakness. You are released from your powerlessness. And immediately, she was made straight, and she glorified God. This is a supernatural work. This was not by human means, not by human effort. It was not by the power of innovative medicine. It was not by the treatment of physical therapy. But it was totally by the power of God alone, who alone could lift this burden from this woman crushed by the spirit 
of infirmity. And all of this is but a shadow of God's ultimate work of deliverance in the gospel of releasing us from the bondage of sin, the weight of the law. Because for all who are in Christ by faith, Paul writes this in Romans 8, that the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Remember, the law cannot save us. The law can only condemn us. But God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of the flesh. He condemned sin. He condemned, he, he exercised the punishment of the law, the justice of the law upon Christ, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled for us and in us because we are in Christ. And we walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. You see, to be in Christ means you don't trust in your own flesh, your own self, your own doing, but that you have put your trust in the one anointed by the Spirit, Jesus the Christ, who lived for us and died for us. This is the good news of the gospel. It's just as we sang, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demand. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All of this and more could not for sin atone. Thou must save and thou alone. And what a relief that we have a Savior, and that we do not need to bear our own weight of sin, but that we have one who has come to bear it for us on the cross, so that we can sing, nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling. This is the glory of the gospel. It it brings sinners joy and relief and comfort. And all this was so dramatically pictorialized in the deliverance of this woman who glorified God upon her healing ecstatically. And I imagine she leaped for joy as high as she could the moment that Jesus healed her. But not everybody was happy. Upon witnessing this astounding miracle, the the ruler of the synagogue with a hardened and callous heart He was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the people, remember it says, uh, not not even to Jesus, but passive aggressively, he said to everybody else, verse 14, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Now, if you've been with us throughout our study of Luke's gospel, you know that this isn't the first time that Jesus had to deal with the issue of the Sabbath, nor is it the last time. But here, there's a reason why this particular healing occurred on the Sabbath, including the whole pushback from this ruler. It's because Jesus was not only lifting this woman's physical burdens, but he was relieving everyone of the unbearable burden of legalism. It's all interrelated. You see, the reason why the Sabbath issue comes up so often in the gospel records is because it was the quintessential example of the legalistic religion that the true living faith of the Old Testament had mutated into, thanks to the leadership of the spiritually lifeless Jewish elite, like this synagogue ruler. Now, to summarize, God gave the Sabbath. He commanded it as a gift to man saying six days you shall work, but on the seventh day rest, 
don't work and don't worry because I'll provide everything you need. I want you to rest from your labor. Now, yes, this Sabbath rest was commanded and it was mandated. But in the sense that, as Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. He, he makes me lie down. The Sabbath command was God's fatherly care over his little children, making them take spiritual naps, as it were, of weekly rest, even if they don't want to. But as any good parent knows, they need it. God knows our needs better than we do. And so he gave the Sabbath command, intending to bless his people, nourish them with the weekly rhythms of rest, and to relieve them of the burden of self-reliance, of having to trust the work of your own hands for all of your needs. But, but you see the key point of the Sabbath command in its original purity. Look at God's heart brimming with immense love and blessing. It, it was a gift of divine nurture. And that's why back in Exodus 16, when, when God first instructed Israel to obey the Sabbath, he tied it with the promise that on the sixth day, there will be double portion of food, enough to cover the seventh day. And so the intent was to say, don't work on the Sabbath, you rest, and I will do the work of providing for you, dear child. Take the Sabbath, take rest, and take that opportunity to gather with my people and enjoy the blessing of corporate worship. But by the time we get to Jesus' day in the first century, the Sabbath had become so disfigured by the Pharisees and other Jewish leaders that it was hardly recognizable anymore. Because the Sabbath had become this cold, mechanical, onerous rule that you could not lift a finger on this day. And so they constricted the people with the obligation of total inactivity. As if idleness somehow glorifies God. And they came up with all kinds of man-made rules and traditions, overlaid them on top of God's word, and enforced these extra-biblical rules that they completely uh, misrepresented by by doing so, the whole point of the Sabbath. I mean, it just gets ridiculous. The rabbis taught that uh, in order to properly observe the Sabbath, that on the Sabbath day, you couldn't pick up anything that was heavier than a dried fig, because that would be considered work. But of course, even they realized that it was a really cumbersome rule that they made up. And so they came up with loopholes. Well, if you pick it up with the back of your hands, or if you pick it up with your mouth, then that's okay, because that's, that's not the usual way in which you would pick up an object for work purposes. And so literally, people would be spending all day on the Sabbath, by the instruction of these Jewish leaders, Everybody on the Sabbath day would be walking around like this, trying to pick up every little object. I mean, it was just insanity. They, they were, everybody was living like deranged lunatics, like a bunch of slaves living under an abusive master who plays sick, twisted jokes like this. Well, that's the insanity of legalism. These Jewish leaders turned what was God's richest blessing of love and nurture into an arduous and heavy burden. You see, the fundamental problem with legalism is that it distorts the character of God. It depicts God as though He were some merciless authoritarian who imposes rules merely for the sake of rules, who just demands lifeless, ritualistic compliance 
at the cost of our joy and peace and happiness. Legalism views God as though he were Pharaoh of Egypt. And case in point here, this wicked synagogue ruler who had the audacity to imply that God would have been honored by some callous and loveless inaction for a suffering woman because it's a Sabbath day, the, the one day a week where we're supposed to suit up, as they said, in a straitjacket and spend the entire day in paralysis because somehow God is placated by that. That is the most heinous defamation of God and His glorious character as the fount of every blessing, the giver of life and joy and peace and rest. And so Jesus, filled with true holy indignation, he rebukes the daylights out of the synagogue ruler and sets the record straight in verse 15. And the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. Now notice how Jesus speaks in the plural, even though he's talking just to the synagogue ruler. It's because he's speaking to and of all of his kind, all of his colleagues, the whole machinery of Pharisaic legalism and its constituents. You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? You make up all these rules that split the hairs of psychopathic technicalities, but you yourself know that it's ludicrous because you feed and tend to your own animals on the Sabbath. You feel, even with your own rules, that it is worthy that you would lift a finger for the beasts of the field. But you're telling me that this woman, created in God's image, bound by Satan for 18 years, that she can't be tended to? Well, apparently, you have no problem with the devil doing his work on the Sabbath day. You'd rather her stay bound in his chains. You godless man, you know nothing of God. And I love what Jesus says in verse 16. He says, Let not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. You know what he's saying? He's saying, you got it all wrong. This day, this Sabbath, Sabbath means rest, okay? This Sabbath day of rest, this is precisely the best day of this entire week for her to be healed because this is the meaning of the sabbath you fool rest for the weary relief from burden the freeing of the bound the lifting of the crushed this is god's heart for mankind this is god's heart in the gospel you see to bring ultimate final all sufficient rest for sinners to not only free them from the burden of the law's demands but to liberate them from the lies of legalism, especially for believers, for his own people. And maybe some of you here today, you're in Christ, you're born again by faith, secure in his grace, but you've forgotten. And you've been letting yourself be robbed of joy and peace in the gospel because for some reason, you're convinced that you're Spiritual comfort and security rests on your continued doing and working. 
You've been living as a Christian, maybe not trying to earn God's favor, because sure, you know better than that. I mean, that's basic gospel 101. But some of you, perhaps, you've been tirelessly trying to maintain God's favor by how faithful you are, by what kind of a Christian you are, by your own spiritual performance, by the metric of what you do for Christ as opposed to resting on who you are in Christ and what He has already done and finished. A very easy way to tell is if you find yourself often weary, heavy laden, restless in your walk with the Lord. If that's you, Jesus tells you very simply, come to me, I'll give you rest. You have true Sabbath in me already because I've finished the work for you once for all on the cross. Rest in me. Trust in me. If you've been united to me by faith, then solely on that basis, you are forever beloved by the Father. And with you, He is well pleased. Oh, how hard it is for us to believe that sometimes. But if it helps, and it will help, notice here how Jesus, as he rebukes the ruler of the synagogue, what he was really doing here was coming to this woman's defense against this vile accuser who insisted that she remain crushed by the weight that Jesus had already lifted. And isn't this what the devil does? He, he bluffs and he deceives you into believing that you must take on the weight of the law's burden once again, even though Jesus already took it all off and he bore it all. And look at how Jesus steps in. Notice how he calls her daughter of Abraham. Now, why does he call her that? Well, one, I mean, she's, he's, he's recognized that she was a Jew by blood. But two, more than that, Jesus was publicly affirming this woman is not only a Jew outwardly, but a true Jew inwardly, a true child of Abraham. As Paul says in Galatians, the true children of Abraham, Jesus never said that about about the unbelieving Jews. In fact, they said, we have Abraham as our father. Abraham's not your father. If Abraham were your father, you'd believe in me. You'd be a person of true faith. Abraham ain't your daddy. The devil is your father. John chapter 8. Whenever Jesus says, daughter of Abraham, whenever he speaks of Abraham, it is, it is a conferral, a confirmation of true living faith. That she is a true child of Abraham. And so see here, this is how Jesus comes to the defense of all who are the true children of Abraham, spiritual offspring of saving faith. All who do not rely on the works of their own selves but trust in what Jesus has done. You see, He is the advocate of His people against every accusation. Christian, whenever you feel the weight of condemnation, the accusations of the devil, whispering in your ear saying, you're not righteous. Look at what a pathetic Christian you still are. How could God love you when He sees you for who you really are? If you feel the weight of the law crushing you down, you must look to your advocate, your defender, 
And you must preach to yourself, I know I am not righteous, but He is my righteousness. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, He was raised and at the right hand of God, now interceding for us, advocating for us, defending us against every accusation. And I love how this passage ends in verse 17. As He said all these things, all His adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by Him. This is a phrase that's repeated all throughout the Bible to describe God's triumph over every enemy and accuser on behalf of His people. All His adversaries were put to shame. He puts to shame all His enemies. And the promise in every one of those instances, especially you see this in the Psalms, is this. That no one who puts their trust in God will be put to shame. Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent on the cross. And as Colossians 2.15 says, that Jesus, by doing so, He disarmed every demonic assailant and accuser and put them to open shame by freeing us from the demand of the law and our record of debt. And it is God's will that just as the people did that day, that we too, as believers, would rejoice at the glorious triumph that was done by Jesus, who once for all put to shame all the adversaries against Him and His beloved people. Church, this is the true joy and rest in the gospel. This is the gospel of the eternal Sabbath. It is the good news of the infinite goodness of God. And you must learn to trust the all-sufficient grace of the Lord Jesus, that it is not too good to be true. And learn to enjoy the peace that is found in the abiding presence of the Lord of the Sabbath. And as you do, when you do, it is then and only then that you will find how delightful His commands really are. And you'll be able to say with the psalmist, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gospel of the freedom from the bondage of sin. We thank you for sending your son to take on a burden that we could not bear. And we ask that you would confirm for us this very truth that has been revealed to us in your word. And Lord, as we now prepare to take the the sacrament of communion, we ask that you would set apart this bread and the cup for the purpose of assuring us and confirming for us and sealing unto our hearts the sufficiency of the new covenant which Jesus, our Lord, enacted and finished on the cross. Help us to receive it by faith. We ask in his name. Amen.